We are in Revelation chapter 19, if you'd like to turn there. We're going to be looking at the second half of the chapter today. Thanks, brother. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 through 21 specifically. So many of you know that we have been engaged in quite a lengthy verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. Uh, Started back the end of March, we started into it, and we are, if everything goes according to plan, uh, the final sermon and Revelation will be February 7th, and then we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark after that, and that I fully expect will take us all to 2021. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, let's, uh, let's just begin this morning by reading the passage together, starting with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's go back to verse 11. John sees heaven open up in front of him, And it's been a bit. We've taken a couple of Sundays to do other things uh, in December. And so let me just remind you of the beginning of verse 11. And you can certainly, uh, I'm sorry, the beginning of chapter 19. And you can certainly look back and and refresh your memory on that as well. But a few weeks ago, uh, when we looked at the beginning of chapter 19, we saw a great multitude. And this was comprised of those who had trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. This great multitude at the beginning of chapter 19 is comprised of those who are worshiping God, and they have been clothed in righteousness, if you remember. The ESV doesn't translate it exactly right from the Greek, but they have been clothed by the bridegroom in righteousness in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And so here we are in verse 11, and we see Jesus. Jesus, however, is no longer as he has been in the book of Revelation throughout our study. We've seen him pictured as a lamb. Now we do not see him any longer pictured as a lamb, but as the warrior Messiah. He is a lion now. He is returning as the warrior Messiah, and he's ready to wage a final war against evil. This isn't the only time that we see this in the New Testament. Let me just show you quickly here one passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, speaking of the same time that our passage is talking about in Revelation 19, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the New Testament depicts the return of Christ as a conquering king who has come to destroy his enemies and to establish his reign on the earth. The sacrificial lamb if you will, has now become a roaring lion. The lamb is now a lion. And so Jesus appears here before John riding a white horse. And in verses 11 through 13, just three verses, we see Jesus described in seven different ways. And I just want to point each of these out to you. I'm looking at verses 11 through 13 in chapter 19. So how is Jesus described here? Seven ways. First of all, you'll see on the screen, he's described as being faithful and true. He is faithful and true. In the beginning of Revelation, we saw this right from the beginning of of the book. Jesus is identified by John as being the faithful witness. Revelation 1.5 is the verse. Jesus is called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now, what is the significance of that. Why is that important? Christ is absolutely faithful to his destiny. He is true in all of his judgments. He will, just as John pointed out throughout his gospel, when Jesus was on the earth living out his earthly ministry, many times John would say throughout his gospel, Jesus did everything that the Father wanted him to do. Or Jesus would say that himself, I must accomplish the will of of the Father. And then he's on the cross and he says, it is finished. It's done. I've done the will of the Heavenly Father. Jesus will be faithful and true to everything that he is supposed to do to bring about the expected end that God had planned as the author of this great story he is writing. The end is here. We're studying it now. And Jesus will accomplish what he is supposed to do. That's the significance of that. Now, second of all, you see in verse 11, he is the one who judges in righteousness. Christ judges in righteousness. Psalm 96.13, it's not on the screen for you, but Psalm 96.13 says, he will judge the world, this is speaking of Jehovah, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And now this same description that was applied in the Old Testament to God the Father is now applied to Jesus Christ. Third, on the screen, you see that he has eyes like a flame of fire. 
must have been something to see, but his blazing eyes reflect his eagerness to carry out the mission that lay before him again. He is faithful. He is true. He is going to accomplish the purpose that is set out before him. He is the warrior Messiah who will not fail. Fourth, he has on his head many diadems. Diadems are crowns, if you're unfamiliar with that term. He has many crowns on his head. He's wearing these as an indication of his unlimited sovereignty. The rule of Jesus Christ is absolute. The rule of Jesus Christ is eternal. Now, there are many in the world today that would refuse to accept that. One day they will not have a choice to accept that or not to accept that. The rule of Christ is absolute and it's eternal. It's complete. Number five, the fifth one, the fifth description we see, we're into verse 12 now. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. I love this because it reminds me of a truth about Scripture. It's a secret name. What is that secret name? I have no idea. If I knew, it wouldn't be a secret, would it? It wouldn't be a secret if we, if we could discover it somehow. Why are we always, church, why do we as Christ followers always want to strip the Bible of mystery? We should accept and embrace the mystery that we see in Scripture. There are always going to be mysteries for us to embrace in Scripture. No matter how long you walk with the Lord, no matter how much you study this book, there will be mysteries to embrace. Make it a passion of your life to know this book. Make it a passion of your life to know the Bible. I will promise you that your, your life will be completely enriched by that pursuit. However, as we swim deeper into studying Scripture, I think that what we discover is that the Word of God is an ocean that has depths to it that we cannot possibly know. I would say it to you this way. The more you study Scripture, the more mystery there will be. Well, pastor, why should I study that? <laughs> because we need to learn to embrace the mystery. And we might be tempted to think, well, okay, I'll just wait for heaven. Because when I get to heaven one day, all of a sudden, all those mysteries will go away and I will completely understand everything about the mind of God. Really? I have no expectation of ever completely understanding everything about the mind, the, the mind of God. I mean, I have a very finite mind. Believe me, it's very finite. <laughs> and we're talking about an infinite God, an eternal being who has always been, who always will be. I don't believe that my finite mind will ever fully comprehend an infinite God, even on the other side, one day in heaven. And why is that bad? I want to press this point with you because I think it's so important. So many Christians, Christ followers, get hung up on this idea, I have to get it all. I have to understand it all. I have to have an answer for everything because if I don't, then there must be some kind of weakness in my faith. No. Friend, that's not it at all. 
When you trust in God, not understanding everything, you are demonstrating your faith. Amen? So don't think that you have to know it all. It's not bad to embrace mystery. Let me give you an example. When you start a great book, how many of you are readers? Let me see your hands. You love books, okay? When you start a great book, or how many of you watch movies? How many of you love movies, okay? When you're halfway into a great movie, isn't that the best part? When you start, I I know that's how I am with a, a new book. You open it up, you crack it. Those of you who are book lovers, hardcover book lovers, you know what I'm talking about. You crack it open, and you hear that initial and then you, you start in. That's the best. When you're watching a great movie, I'm not talking about a bad movie, I'm talking about a great movie, you're halfway in, and the plot's getting good, and things are really fueling up. That's the best part. And isn't there almost a sense of sadness when it ends? When you finish the book, or you get to the end of the movie? What if heaven will be an endless discovery of God and truth? An endless discovery of God and truth. Heaven will be a story without end. There will always be another chapter of the book that you just can't get enough of. Constant new adventures, constant new quests. Okay, I'm showing my nerddom right now. Those of you who know me well, you know that I have an affinity for Aragorn and Bilbo and Lucy Pevensey and reap a cheap the mouse, and only the nerds in the room even know what I'm talking about. The rest of you are like, what's wrong with Pastor Terry right now? But what if heaven is an endless quest, always a new adventure, always more knowledge to attain? I think that there are going to be mysteries that our finite minds will never fully grasp, and quite frankly, I think that's okay. Sixth, the sixth description you see on the screen of of Christ here, and and now we're into verse 13 in the text, is that he's clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And as I've looked at multiple commentaries about this idea, you know, won't shock you at this point for me to say Bible Bible scholars don't all agree. What's up with the robe? What's up with the robe dripped in blood? Whose blood is it? Is it the blood of his enemies? Is it his own blood? Is this a symbol of the cross? I don't know. But this is how Jesus is described here. I believe it symbolizes, though, his victory. Because whether it's the blood of his enemies or if it's his own blood that was sacrificed on the cross, the cross is how he won the victory for us, church. And so this symbolizes his victory in the coming conflict. Seventh and finally, Jesus is described in verse 13 as the word of God, and this is the Greek word logos. Uh, This is the name of Jesus that John loves so well. Decades prior to John being given the revelation here, he's going to write a gospel and tell his tale about the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the very beginning of his gospel that he writes, this is the first name right out of the gate that he uses for Jesus. As he writes, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, is the Greek word he uses. And the logos was God, and the logos was with God. Got those two mixed up, but you know what I mean. 
Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. The logos, the idea of it, as we, the closest thing we have in English is word, but it's the idea of the expression. I'm up here right now doing my absolute best to tell you what Revelation chapter 19 says. I'm expressing it to you. And this is what the idea is behind logos. Jesus is the expression of God. Jesus came to the earth for many reasons, to pay the penalty for our sin and many other reasons. But one of those is that he was the expression of God so that we would have a better idea of who God the Father is. And John says in John 1.1, he's the word. He's the expression of God. And then he goes on. If you look at verse 14, that's on the screen as well. John goes on to write the, that word, the logos. And let me tell you, this would have been so radical. This would have been such a radical statement for any philosopher, thinker, theologian, teacher, rabbi of the day to make for Jew or for Greek. John says that word, the logos, the expression of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus has revealed the Father to the world. And then in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 19, moving on with the text, we see that Christ is leading an army. If ever there was an army without purpose, and you'll see what I mean later on. But Jesus has an army. And this army is composed of both angels, we think, and the redeemed. It's a heavenly army. There's no reason for us to think that they're not. It's not composed of angelic beings as well as those who have been saved and redeemed. And we will see that they play absolutely no role in the battle. They're there with Christ, but they never fight. They're there with him, but they play no role in the battle. Jesus needs no assistance to defeat his enemies. The lion only needs to roar. That's all that has to happen for the enemy, his enemies to be defeated. And this war has been, been over for a long time anyways. It's over because of the cross. And so Jesus comes here in this scene in Revelation chapter 19, ready to conquer. Look at verse 15 with me in the text. From his mouth, again, the idea of word, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. And most Bible scholars think that sharp sword is symbolic of his very words. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You see 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul writing and saying, And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, we know him now by many names in Revelation, the beast, the Antichrist, the lawless one, as Paul refers to him here to the church in Thessalonica, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This Paul is talking about the same thing we're reading about in Revelation chapter 19. They're both describing the same event in these two verses. And then if you look at verse 16 in the text, we see another title that belongs to our Lord. He is the King of Kings 
and the Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. The remaining verses of the chapter, we see the final victory of Jesus over the Antichrist. This is it. This is the battle of Armageddon. Because here Christ defeats the Antichrist, he defeats the false prophet, and he defeats all who have sided with them. All of those on the earth who have rejected God's free gift of salvation, who have turned their backs on the grace of God and have stayed true to their sin and to the Antichrist. And here we see this final battle that happens, and it's not much of a battle. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Please notice, I read that fast, but look at the verse again. Please notice that in this final battle, the enemies of God will all suffer the same outcome regardless of their authority, regardless of their socioeconomic status. There is no respecter of persons here. Regardless of the status that they have enjoyed in this life, wealth, power, authority, all of that, when this happens in the future, in history, when this happens... All of that will be absolutely worthless. You won't be able to buy your way out of this. You won't be able to have a good enough private security force that you can defend your fortress. There is no respecter of persons here. But the gospel is good news, church. And so there's never cause for anyone today on this side of this historical event, there's never cause for anyone to despair. Bible scholar Robert Mounts says it really well in relationship to this. He says, the good news, the gospel, he's saying, is that people need not bear the just punishment due their sin. Don't just skip over that as we're so prone to do when we read something. Let me read it to you again so we all get it. The good news is that people need not bear the just punishment due their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. No one has to pay the penalty of their sin. God's grace and forgiveness is waiting for them. Well, let, me Robert, let me let Robert Mount speak and not me. He says, no one has to pay the just punishment due to their sin, but that another has paid the price on their behalf. Only when people refuse forgiveness must they bear the penalty for their wickedness. Some of us, if we're honest, read a passage like this, and we really wrestle with it. Can we be real? We read some of these passages in Revelation, and we're like, really? This is really going to happen? This is in the Bible? Listen, God's offer of salvation is waiting for everyone on the planet. It's right there. And all they have to do is accept the free gift that Christ is offering us, and they can be saved too. Amen? And then with verse 19, the battle of Armageddon has finally arrived. And here we see John records what he's seen. And he says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, 
who was sitting on the horse and against his army. There are many passages in the Bible that describe this very war. Old and New Testament, I mean, especially old, that describe this war as a prophetic event. Uh, It's in Isaiah, it's in Daniel, it's in Joel, it's in Zechariah. You can read about this battle many different places in Scripture. I'm just going to show you one, uh, what Paul writes to the Thessalonians on your screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, this is what we're talking about with the battle of Armageddon, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Returning back to Revelation chapter 19, what is the outcome to this final battle, to the battle of Armageddon? Let's look at the last two verses of the chapter. It's very quick. If, if this were a movie, it would seem incredibly anticlimactic. A lot of buildup. We've been building up to this moment for the last few chapters. I've preached multiple messages that have been building up to this very moment, but look at what verses 20 and 21 tell us. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, all of those who had followed after the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest, those who followed after them, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Christ, of him who is sitting on the horse. And then all of the birds were gorged with their flesh. I know that's very graphic. It is. It's very tragic. It's going to be a horrible event. And that speaks very much to why this is so important that we think about it and we know about it. Bible scholar Grant Osborne writes, there is in reality no battle. All of the buildup leads to something that's over in a second. Christ speaks and it's done. There is in reality no battle. The armies of the Antichrist are waiting, but when the sword of judgment comes from the Lord's mouth, the battle's instantly over and all the evil forces are dead on the battlefield. The beast and the false prophet are captured. The armies of Christ seemingly take no part in the fighting because there is no fighting. It is over before it ever even begins. Please remember from our past studies in Revelation that we have already discovered a few things here. I think it's important to think about right now. Remember that the beast talked about here in these verses is the Antichrist and that this is, we said very clearly, that this is the personification of secular power. The Antichrist is going to represent, will it be a man? Will it be a group of people? Will it be a government? I'm not getting into any of that. I've resisted that for the last year to get into timelines and identifying people and Anytime anyone's ever done that in history, they've been wrong. I have no desire to be on a list of people who have been wrong. And so I'm not going to do that today. But what we see here very clearly is that the Antichrist represents the personification of secular power. The false prophet we talked about months ago now represents the false church. Again, I'm not going to name names or people or denominations or anything like that. 
But the false prophet represents religious leaders who are persuading people to follow after the Antichrist. And so you have a secular leader, and then you have a religious leader who's saying, follow after the secular leader. Turn your back on the true and living God and follow after secular authority. Brothers and sisters, we need, very simply, as we think about these things, to watch and pray so that we will not be led astray by their lies. Because whether or not we are living in the last days, and and again, I'm not going to conjecture, whether or not we are in the last of the last days or not, John says very clearly earlier, the Antichrists were already at play back during the times of time of Jesus. And so there have always been antichrists, and there have always been false prophets that try to persuade people to worship secular power and to go after secular authority. So that being the case, this is very relevant for us today, because whether or not this is the end or it's not the end, this is something that's very easy for us as Christ followers to be swept away in. And what is their punishment? Eternal punishment in the lake of fire. The beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, this religious leader, are thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. But we're about out of time, so let me just draw one point of application, just one idea for you. I'm sure there are others, and if you look at this text more, and maybe you've already thought of a few things, and I certainly encourage that for you to draw your own points of application. But I'm just going to pull out one idea for you. Church, there are two types of people in the world. There are two types of people in the world. There's only one dividing line between people that matters. Let me tell you what it's not. The dividing line that matters between people is not between black people and white people. That's not the dividing line, biblically. The dividing line that matters is not between rich and poor. Anything that would be based on socioeconomic status or the haves and the have-nots, right? The 1% and then the rest of us. That's not the dividing line that matters. The dividing line is definitely not between Republicans and Democrats. That is not the dividing line that matters. If I haven't ticked enough people off yet, let me push it even farther. The dividing line that is that does not matter is not between conservatives and liberals. It doesn't matter. Biblically, these things do not matter. They are not legitimate dividing lines. The Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 The true dividing line, according to Scripture, that matters when he says this. Well, let me show you. 1 Corinthians 1.18, our last slide of the morning here. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I would suggest to you this morning that this is the only dividing line that matters. Period. Nothing else. Nothing else should divide us as people. But the word of the cross, the gospel, let me translate this for you, make it even simpler. The gospel is foolishness if you're perishing, but if you're being saved, the gospel is the power of God. 
There are two types of people. Who are they? The perishing and the saved. This is the only distinction. This is the only distinction that matters. And our mission is to do everything that we can to persuade the perishing to join us. Amen? It, that's our mission. And so why is this important? Pastor Terry, why are you pushing this point? Here's why. When we divide ourselves from other people based on other things, other than this dividing line, we lose that opportunity. The only dividing line that matters is this. There's a line between the perishing and the saved. How can you discern between the two? Paul says it clearly to the church in Corinth. The perishing see the cross. The message of the gospel is what he's saying as foolishness. They have rejected God's offer of salvation. Listen, church, the perishing will be in hell one day because they have climbed over the body of Jesus Christ to get there. They have rejected his free offer of salvation. They could have been saved, but they chose their sin. The saved know that the gospel is not foolishness, but that it's the power of God to bring people from death to life. So this is really the crucial question, and I'll end with this idea. Here's the crucial question. There really is no greater question in your life. Which group of people do you belong to? This one dividing line. Forget about the rest. It doesn't matter. But this one dividing line, the perishing and the saved, which group of people do you belong to? Is the gospel foolishness to you, or is it the power of God for your salvation? Can I ask you to bow your head, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. I want to speak not only to those of us who are in the room right now, but those also watching over our broadcast. And, and maybe someone will, I don't know, click this link a week from now, a couple weeks from now, and watch the service. To anyone who can hear me now, I want to tell you about the most beautiful message that there is, because it talks about a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, that if you embrace it and you believe it and you put your faith and trust in it, changes your life completely. And it not only changes your life completely in the here and now, but it changes your eternity. There's nothing more significant than this, than this message. And, and that's why I believe Paul said that, that there's only one dividing line that matters because there's only one affiliation in our lives that makes any difference for our eternity, that makes the distinction between whether we're perishing or whether we're being saved. And it all comes down to how do you see the gospel message? Do you see it as foolishness? 
do you see what we believe to be a historical reality that God, the Son, came to the earth, lived and then died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins? Do you see that as foolishness or do you see it as the power of God for your salvation? The message is really quite simple. Little children understand it every day and enter the kingdom. I love when we have the opportunity to baptize little children who have come to an understanding of the gospel because it's so simple that a a four-year-old can can get it, can understand it. It's the message that God loves you, that God loves you with an unfailing love, but that your sin has separated you from him. And the consequences of your sin are death and judgment. And there was absolutely nothing that you could do about it. There's no amount of good that you could do to make up the difference for that, to tip the scales back your way, to remove the wrongs that you've done. The Bible is so clear that if you've sinned even once, you've offended a holy God. And that that can't be undone by you. And so knowing that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to the earth and he lived a life of love and he was our example in so many ways. And then he went to the cross and he died for our our salvation to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you're listening to me right now, you might be tempted to think, well, yeah, but you have no idea the type of sins I've committed. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but you have no idea. I've been living for 50, 60, 70 years without God. And now God will accept me? Yes, absolutely he will. Absolutely he will. He will take you in his arms because he created you out of love. And it's been his desire to live with you for an eternity because he loves you. So what do you need to do? You need to accept the free gift that you're being offered right now. And even if there's one person, either here in this room or watching online right now, that has never made this decision, that free gift of salvation is being offered to you right now. Will 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 you take it? Will you receive it? Will you accept it? Put your hope, put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation right now. Trust in him to save you. Understand that you're drowning in your own sin. You were born into it and you've continued to sin throughout your life. But right now, Jesus is reaching out to you and he wants to save you. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Trust in him alone to save you. That's his desire. He loves you and he wants to begin a relationship with you that will last forever.